in this sort of harmonized you know world we're, we're encouraging a reduction in the tool set i think there has to be a journey for that and that really means that platforms have to provide integrations with other tooling and that could be for a you know a, a transitional period but it could be that you know an organization has a particular tool that for whatever reasons they want to stick with and they want to stick with permanently uh, or at least that's their view at the moment so being able to support those integrations is important Hello and welcome to DevOps Sauna Podcast. The DevOps Conference is happening again on March 8th and 9th and you are invited to join our event. And if you listen to this episode after the event, don't worry about missing the opportunity. You can watch and listen to all speeches online. While DevOps is indisputably about culture and processes, we cannot disregard the role of tools. Where both terms, DevOps toolchain, and DevOps Platform emerged at around 2010, the term DevOps Platform is now about 10 times as popular. What does it mean and what's the difference between DevOps Toolchain and DevOps Platform? We invited Adrian Waters, a solutions architect from GitLab, and Kalle Sirkesalo, a CTO of Managed Services at Efficode, to discuss the topic. Let's dive in. Welcome to the DevOps Sauna podcast, Adrian and Kalle. Good morning, and uh, thanks very much for inviting me along today. Uh, thank you, Papa, also for inviting me. Thanks for joining. I have been now talking to quite a few people about topics that we're going to cover in the DevOps conference, and uh, many of them revolve around DevOps, surprisingly. And there was a very good definition, I think it was uh, in Nicole Forsgren's synopsis, where I'm maybe paraphrasing it, but the synopsis said that DevOps was originally about taking care of people while they create great software. And uh, in this respect, you could say that people is the most important factor in DevOps, and then comes processes, and then comes tools. But without the right kind of tools or with the tools itself, it would still be an incomplete picture. And uh, today we are talking about tools. I believe you agree with me that when the tools part is done right, then we can focus more on people and processes because in a way we have gotten the tools questions out of the way. We see that there is a movement going on in this tooling space. And I have seen that movement before in different industries where you start from a situation where you get the best tool for each purpose and then you basically integrate them together. And then in the course of time, these individual small tools that does one thing well or that do one thing well, then they congregate into bigger entities. And then eventually we start to talk about a single tool for the whole business process or that majority of that business process is going to be catered by one tool. So let's start with the open question. Where is this tools space going and uh, what are the trends there? Adrian, yeah, I, w- I would agree absolutely with that. I, you know, I think we see um, within our customer base uh, this sort of desire to move to a more consolidated approach versus sort of distinct tools, and I think that's also being seen in the industry uh, as well. I mean, Gartner have published their Value Stream Development Platform Guide, um, which uh, I think the update last year was saying that by 2024, around 60% of organisations will move to a platform approach rather than individual tools, which given that's only two years away, 
that's at from 20% now. So that's a, you know, a really large increase. And it does reflect what we see. You know, I think looking back over the history of DevOps, you know, from initial team based approaches, every team choosing their own, their own tooling. Um, and then sort of attempts across the organizations to you know, standardize on particular tools for particular aspects of, of the life cycle, but each department still managing themselves through to then attempts to sort of, you know, provide a more sort of integrated approach to those tools. So those all, that direction has all had benefits, but I think it still has left organizations feeling that they really haven't yet got the true benefits from DevOps that the investments you know, that they've put into it, you know, should have resulted in. So they haven't achieved the agility or the speed or the quality um, of delivery that they were really aiming for. You know, there I think there are various reasons for that. Um, and, you know, one is where you have a sort of a multi-tool approach, you're often still having a sort of a, a, a siloed approach in many ways because you've got different users across the, the, the DevOps lifecycle, utilizing different tools. So that then feeds into the, the, the people in the process you know, side of things. And, and that's one of the, the areas that by adopting a more platform-based approach, you can try to remove those silos from a technical perspective, but more importantly, then the knock-on effect in terms of people in process. Yeah, I think this is mostly about because the tools don't really matter if you're a top expert. If you know how to do DevOps and you're like already doing DevOps properly, you can do it with PassScript. You you can write a PassScript and put it in a cron job and uh, have it running and figure out what you're doing. You will solve the way to do, go fast. You will solve the way to release often and continuously. But to support large-scale rollout, like if we're talking about uh, over 8,000 developers at one time, you can't do that in a pass script. Nobody is able to help someone with their pass script if they have that running. It's the same thing when you have, like, when you start adding tools, you add complexity easily. If you have very well-defined documentation and ways of working, it's very easy to get in on those multitude of tools and you're focusing on people at that point. But if we look at big corporations or big movement, and even small movement, you don't usually have time to write, this is how we develop software. This is where, how we are going to do it. It makes a lot more sense that you come in and you see, oh, this is how everybody's doing it. I can do it exactly the same way because you have those inner sourcing and comparable so, uh, solutions available. You're seeing what doctors are working by just entering to the tool. And having the same tool everywhere means that it is a lot easier to get those design ops, uh, sec ops, uh, whatever ops you want in there. Because you can share those examples. You're not limited by, oh, but you don't have access to this tool because everybody is in the same tool already. Yes, some features might not be in your use because you are not able to use them. But at least you can share information. And if you're like, yeah, but you can't access it from this network. You need the other tool for that. That gets removed if everybody is trying to work on the same tool because you're like constantly thinking, how do we make this tooling space so that anything that someone does works the same way for the others? Which means that then it becomes more of the communication together. Or would you say, I, I think at least that way. Yeah, I, I think the you know, key in there, you said sharing of information. And, uh, you know, I think where you've got separate tools, that becomes more difficult. Yes, I mean, often, you know, you'll see organizations that have, have built their own sort of platform around the tooling. Um, or they've they've attempted to, but that's not straightforward. And you know, if you're extracting data from one tool, 
to to map the data in another tool that is not always simple you know entities might have sort of slightly different meanings you know so that that becomes a, a sort of a, a bottleneck and and it decreases collaboration you know and obviously we, we know that collaboration is you know absolutely key to uh, this sort of life cycle and it makes everything like if you think about managing from top level or managing from any level it becomes impossible when you try and discuss with the customers like uh Uh, or like your employees that hey, this is how we do it. But if you have twenty Jenkinses that work differently, you have twenty different things that you have to communicate to those teams. So you're not communicating. Hey, you can just deploy this uh, Docker image, for example, here, and it will start working. No, you have to do all of the other steps. Like if you are in this tool, you have to go here. And as we know, the more ifs you have in a sentence. If you look at SonarCube, for example, or any code, uh, static code analysis, you see the complexity going up when you go deeper. And in big corporations, when you have many tools, you have the depth going in like somewhere like 50. You have 50 different tools at the end because you have a different kind of like subsets of what are you be using. And I see as a trend, we want to simplify things because we are talking about the programmer like shortage. Which I don't agree completely. I agree we have that, but I also agree that we have a junior problem. But anyway, that's another mm-hmm. trend that we have, which affects this. So we need to improve the capability of our experts. Yeah, and and cons- consistency is key because you know the 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 way the industry has gone in terms of cloud native and microservices. There's there's more and more things to manage and and to to collaborate on, and and so having that consistency, you know, one it it means it's easier to bring people on you know to you know say there's there's the shortage of staff and there's no question about that i think you know but if you can bring somebody on and get them up to speed quicker you know quickly then you know that that's a real advantage and i think this sort of you know harmonized approach aids that yeah and i i think consistency is very good like if we look at for example restaurant world if you have seen million pound menu in netflix It's about investors trying to invest in UK restaurants, which Adrian probably has eaten. <laughs> uh, they always talk about that it is important to be consistent in your food, and it's the same thing in anything. Like if you're not consistent, how can we know what do you get out in the next week? Yeah, you need to consistently bring out the same thing. Yeah, and I think that's an essential part of basically continuous improvement. Is you first address variability and only after you address variability and you have some sort of predictable quality or predictable value then you can start improving that based on the predictability yeah and i think that is what brings you to the organization challenges and uh problems that they have in the transition i, I was going to say that that point is really um really valid and uh, you know if if you look at all the different point tools that people will have used in the past in in all of the different areas of the life cycle you know there's some great tools out there and they do a fantastic job in their their area but because of the the, the challenges that we just talked about consistency and siloing and, and so on that doesn't mean to say that overall the enterprise gets the best out of those individual tools and mm-hmm. you know i think what we've seen is you know from a platform approach The functionality in a specific area may not match exactly the functionality of a third-party tool, but the improvements to the overall operation and effectiveness, because of the the, the, the seamless integration, outweighs that it doesn't have feature X, Y, Z. You know, and that can sometimes be a challenge for organizations when they sort of are looking to move, um, you know, or consider moving to you know this this 
you know, different way of working is you can get hung up on um, has it got feature X, has it got feature Y. But if you look at the bigger picture, the benefits that you'll get from an overall workflow, effectiveness, being able to shift left, uh, collaboration, you know, um, things like governance and auditability, those outweigh, you know, those, you know, specific items of functionality, or, or at least they are something that should be explored. Yeah. Another large challenge that usually comes with this is in heavy compliance industry where people are constantly like, but we need to do it this way. And you're trying to ask, what are we actually trying to get out of here? Like, what is the actual like compliance requirement that we need to fill? So if it's separation of duties, why do we have to do it this way? Can't we like actually think about what do we mean by separation of duties? Not try to make uh, GitLab work like Jenkins, for example. We're trying to make it work like it's supposed to while supporting a separation of duties. We are not supposed to start inventing that, hey, we now have two Jenkinses. The idea is not to have two GitLabs. The idea is to have one GitLab where we define permissions so that you have the separation of duties ongoing instead of like trying to. And that's that's a big organizational problem that organizations think that they can do the same thing everywhere, which is not what they should be thinking. They should be thinking what are the actual challenges they're trying to solve. Yeah, I remember from a from Procure to Bay business process, there was a, a time about 15, 20 years ago when a lot of organizations went from paper-based ordering and paper-based payments to digital ordering and digital payments. And in the beginning of uh, 2000s or so, they, they did a, like a major body of work to to think through how should digital ordering and procurement and digital payment in accounts payable how should it look like? And maybe in the course of five years, between 2005, 2010, they, they got it right. So they had a process that fit them. And then come 2016, 2017, when uh, there was this SaaS thing suddenly up, and all of the services were going to SaaS, and uh, companies had to replace their procure to pay on-premise software with the SaaS software. Um, there was invariably this question that it doesn't do this A, it doesn't do this B, it doesn't do this C, so we need a feature parity. And that seemed to be a massive issue in terms of SaaS adoption until it, it sort of clicked both on the vendor side and the customer side that it's pointless trying to bring over 10-year-old business process to a new platform. What you have to do is go back and, and ask yourself, is this business process now modern enough? 10 years have elapsed. Has something happened in this business process front that we could actually rethink this process part as we are transitioning to a different tool? And that was one of the challenges that organizations were facing during those transitions. Does that ring a bell in your case? And, and uh, what kind of challenges would you say that organizations have transitioning from like old world to the new world? You know, a key challenge is, is to avoid the disruption that would be caused by a, a big bang approach. Um, you know, if an organization is using several different tools today and they want to move to a platform approach, you know, both from a technical but also a people in a process uh, perspective, uh, saying like throw out, throw out all your existing tools on day one and, and move to the platform, that's probably not going to be the best best solution. So although in this sort of harmonized you know world, we're, we're encouraging a reduction in the tool set, I think there has to be a journey for that. And that really means that platforms have to provide integrations with other tooling. And that could be for a you know a, a transitional period, but it could be that you know an organization has a particular tool 
that for whatever reasons they want to stick with and they want to stick with permanently, uh, or at least that's their view at the moment. So being able to support those integrations is important, but is a is a, a slight difference or a fundamental difference really to that versus the historic of a, approach, gluing together many different tools across the DevOps tool chain uh, or lifecycle. In the platform approach, you're you're integrating each tool into the platform, and so that that helps to extend the platform whilst retaining you know many of the benefits that the the, the platform provides things that we've talked about you know collaboration common data um, stores uh, and and so on so uh, you know i think i think working out for each organization what is the best approach for them in that transitional you know is is really key you know uh, wh- one of the things that we've seen within our customers is that yes day one their vision or their view is that they they will ad- adopt you know gitlab as a platform but they have a specific tool that they want to maintain because of it, it you know the way it's used within the organization but from experience, what we find is that over time, they recognize the benefits, you know, such as we talked about before, you know, the, that rather than comparing specific functionality within tools, look at the overall benefits, the overall value that it delivers and the improvements to the workflow it delivers. Um, and so we, we find that although customers set out with the view that, oh, yeah, we're going to stick with this other tool, you know, indefinitely, they sometimes will realize the benefits and you know change their mind over time and so gradually we find you know customers adopting more and more of the capabilities instead of maintaining separate tools going forward and that, i think that just reinforces the benefit of this overall approach you know to to the life cycle yeah i think that's a big of the like challenge is usually to trying to explain to an uh, top manager that even though this tool does everything that the other tools do you're not supposed to replace everything at one go. You're supposed to do it like in patches. You're supposed to think about like how can we enable the teams effectively, so we don't go and uh, disturb, disturb their work. We are we are going there, and we are going with KPIs or something. We discuss with them and create key KPIs. What are we migrating, and what can we migrate, and what will they migrate when they have time, and what would that be to enable cap- capabilities and. Uh, Multi-cloud feature, for example, like uh, how how can we do we have every cloud support day one? Probably not. Let's start from having uh, one cloud supported and then add the others when we get people on board. It because having, for example, EKS cluster, AKS cluster, and GKA cluster running on day one is a cost overhead versus ha- when you don't have people running there yet. You want the EKS cluster, for example, if you're running in AVS because you have AVS customers already coming in most likely, and then you add the AKS cluster or GKEA cluster, when you get those customers running in and they are doing the deployments. You don't want to go from, hey, we purchased this uh, GitLab Ultimate license, for example. Let's get everything up and running on GitLab. You want it to go more like, hey, now we have a capability of doing this. Let's inform teams that they can, and let's tell them that we will enable any feature they need, but let's not do it all at once, but rather like according to what is needed. And then we start looking at the map, and seeing where is the holes and allowing those. Like that's, in my opinion, that's a big challenge for organizations to not see that you can do, especially with GitLab, for example. It's very hard for the customers to see that uh, oftentimes that you don't have to take everything into use, even if it does everything. You can take it in parts because it is built as a, so that you can, you don't have to do everything at once. You can do it like, okay, now I have SCM in use and now I added CI, CD, 
Now I have secret management. Now I added Dust, Kubernetes cluster deployment. That's it. So you don't have to do everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, that is the experience within our within our customer base um, is that that they, they will focus on the key areas that will give them, you know, the, the quickest route to, you know, achieving value. But then typically then over time, they will extend the breadth of the capabilities that they're using and also the depth of the, the capabilities. But the multi-cloud is really important. You know, even if, if customers have got their favored, you know, cloud provider today, they're typically still looking at having the capabilities, you know, to either supplement that and, you know, have a true multi-cloud or really to be aware of, you know, well, what would be involved if we did want to change our cloud provider? And I think given the comfort that that can be accommodated, you know, without too much pain is is, is important. And again, I think, you know, that platform approach, um, you know, sort of helps helps with that. Well, yeah, but in my opinion, like, it's stupid to design every system to be multi-cloud immediately, but it is also for an enablement platform, like DevOps platforms are, DevOps tools are, it is uh, also not good if you don't plan it so that you can support multitude of clouds, for example. You have to be able to switch the DevOps tooling to support whatever you will be doing. Uh, and that has to be, th- that is the integration part. That is the working part. Like that is the cloud support part because you have to be able to support the teams in many different approaches. And that's why it's important that the platform can be integrated to new tools for also because that means that the new tools can be taken into use and tested if for some reason something doesn't isn't available in the tool itself because innovation is a big thing and innovation is something you need to do would you be foreseeing one team adopting it fully and then going to the adjacent teams or would you see all teams adopting one functionality fully and then going to the next functionality i i think we see both scenarios i think there's great benefit in testing out and proving out that you know, adopting a certain part of the, of the tool is is going to really give benefit. And, you know, as an organization, you will then learn from that and be able to then apply that as you extend it out across the organization. And, you know, that sort of approach, a sort of iterative approach is is core to how GitLab operates. You know, it's one of our one of our values iteration is that, you know, do something to improve, test it, measure it, improve it, you know, gather feedback. And, uh, you know, so I think, that 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 is an approach that really you know can work well you know across our our customer base, but we do see both, and I, I think one area you know that where that fits in is is things like you know security and application security. It's quite a different way of working than maybe organisations have in the past how they've managed their uh, you know security side of things, and so to again you know the big bang approach of rolling that out right across the organisation. You know, is, is is probably quite a scary thought. So being able to test that out within, you know, particular areas, um, you know, particular teams, you know, definitely gives gives advantages. I would say that like the question is kind of malformed because you expect you're doing just one of those, but you're always doing both of them. Uh, so even if you would decide to go wide, some teams will want to go deep. So you need to be able to have the support functionality that can, can go deep with those teams that you are bringing who want to go deep. Because some some people are really like lovers of the platform. Whatever you choose, they like to do like it and they like the concept and they are like following the trends. And those guys want to go immediately deep and you need to be there and ready to help them. But I think it's more about the strategic view. So 
if we look at, for example, a pricing model, if you haven't yet strategically decided that you're going all in on one platform, then of course you want to go deep. But if you have decided that this is where we are going and this is what we are going to go and do, makes more sense to get everybody into the, uh, for example, GitLab environment, have them uh, migrated there in an SCM function, have the Git function there and allow them to start working with the Git. That enables and have the features available, like shared runners, for example, enabled so they can start deploying and CI seeding because then they are already users of the platform and they are like, oh, there is actually a button here and I can get AutoDevops to create me a CI pipeline. So let's see what happens. And then they can start t- testing that themselves. You don't have to be there the whole way because you want those teams that are interested to be able to already start testing out and doing things that they can. Once again, innovation. You want to enable the innovation of the users and also remove that uh, load from you of moving the users to your platform because they are already moving there by kind of like, oh, it's actually, I can do this and that there, what I couldn't do here. Or it's very easy to get these things running here. Like, for example, secret detection, dust, dust, security features that we were talking about. Yeah, and I think ha- having those teams that do want to go deep early is is valuable because they can then surface their sort of thoughts on best practice for adoption across their their organization. Um, you know, to, to to drive that. I have one thing that is like very weird, which is that the highly adopted DevOps teams that are highly like capable are actually the worst teams to bring to GitLab because they have the most things to migrate to GitLab, for example. Because they have already taken into use 20 tools, for example, to make their pipeline as good as possible. And it's a complex pipeline, most likely, because they have all the things done so that they can deploy fast and automatically, but do a lot of controls. So those teams are actually, the most advanced teams are usually the worst teams to start the testing because they are not the ones that you're targeting when you're doing it. You're targeting the mass. You're trying to get everybody into DevOps. You're not trying to get the best of the best to be the best. You're trying to get everybody on a uh, decent level, at least. Like you're trying yeah, to that, get... That, that, every- that, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say that that's a really good point. And larger organizations you know, will have you know, got you know, some decent maturity in, in their DevOps processes, how, however they've gone about it. Um, you know, if you, if you look at, you know, some smaller organizations, they, they may not have that maturity. They will in certain parts, but, you know, maybe they've not really looked at application security in, in detail as yet, whereas larger organizations will. I think where you've got that expertise and that deep, deep expertise and, you know, they've, they've developed their own ways of doing things, it then, you know, can become a, well, let, let, let's look at what it costs to maintain that, you know, in terms of effort and third party licenses and so on. And, and those are then, you know, considerations that, you know, maybe not day one, but maybe in, you know, six months, a year or whatever, you, you then can look to see, okay, well, the platform will do it this way. This is, you know, and, and within the, the license that we're already paying, this is what it's costing us to do it this way. What are the benefits? You know, yeah. you know, could, could, could we get more benefits out of, you know, sw- switching approach, and you know, what one of the key areas where we see that is is around security. So, you know, security is becoming ever and ever more important. And uh, you know, things like you know the, the the recent vulnerabilities that have been found. You know, that brings it brings it back to the fore. But the benefits of baking the security, you know, right into the day to day workflow workflow of the developer is much easier. To achieve if you've got a sort of platform-based approach rather than if you're using a set of you know different different tools and you know, you know they're you know very good 
security tools out there, they tend to focus on, you know, one or two areas, whether it's static analysis or uh, dependency management or container scanning. Whereas with a platform, you can get all of those different types of scanning and, and vulnerability detection and then be able to report it in a consistent way and, uh, you know, in terms of detection and remediation. And that, that then reduces a lot of the complexity and effort that, you know, maybe those teams before have been trying to build themselves and having to maintain themselves. So that that's one area where we see that example is that, you know, yes, there's something very mature in place, but does it provide the workflow benefits that you really want to, you know, try and try and achieve? You know, this shift left paradigm, bringing security very much into that and into the realm of the developers rather than leaving it in the realm of you know, the security team. Yeah, I've seen the security shift bit by bit that everybody's talking about security, but it's like what big data was, everybody was talking about big data, but very rarely did you face teams that were actually doing security, uh, like these proper terms. So it it became like, for me, I see security being there and being talked about and everybody listing SAS, dust, etc. And then I go there and I see that there is no process, no tooling, no nothing there because nobody wants to invest any money on it. They just want to talk about how they need to do it, but they want to do it budget friendly, for example. But then you have a bunch of open source tools and you're trying to parse together the me- metrics. So I guess you, Adrian, have seen people doing more like common metrics and using tools to get her. Is that, has that been like a bigger trend ongoing in your views or is, is, has it been more of this budget friendly thing? Uh, I, I think there's been a real, a real shift in the last 12, 18 months in terms of you know the the adoption within our customer base of our security capabilities. The developers aren't all security experts, and and so you can't you can't expect you know the development you know teams to have the expertise of the security teams. But if you can create a workflow that highlights back to the developer, you know you've just made a change. Oh look, you've now got these these vulnerabilities. There's either a chance that the developer will be able to, you know, look at, okay, I made this change. This is the impact. I'll, I'll resolve it. I'll sort it myself. But if not, being able to, you know, easily and effectively raise that to the awareness of the security professionals and to have controls in place to make sure that that vulnerability doesn't go anywhere until it's had eyes on by the security, you know, specialists and, and they've sort of said, yes, this is, you know, we need to sort this or no, it, it's okay as it is. And that, that sort of shift to make developers more responsible for security in the changes that they're making benefits them because ultimately they, they will be able to resolve their own issues, you know, the majority of them, but it also reduces the workload on the security team and allows them to focus on the real, you know, uh, problems that does need their expertise and being able to report all that in a consistent fashion and remediate in a consistent fashion is pretty compelling. And I think that's driven, you know, driven a lot of interest in, in the security side of things. You know, it, it, it's making life easier. Um, it's improving the workflow. Um, and you know, that, that's a pretty compelling message. And I think like big thing is that if you can remove all of the machine detectable and OWASP top 10 problems out of the secu- uh, application, 80% of the companies in the world are secure with that because most companies are not being attacked by like uh, targeted attack. They are being attacked by bots and so on. 
yeah and 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 the you know the the other you know key area is is open source you know the developers are using more and more open source and we've seen recently you, you've had a solution in there you've had software running you're quite happy you know you think it's it, it's free of vulnerabilities and then you know suddenly something out there happens and you find oh no okay we've we, we've got a problem here and you know having the tooling to help you identify you know, well, where does that exist? You know, what's the impact to us? You know, e even something as simple as, you know, a bill of materials to be able to identify, you know, where you might be exposed to one of these new vulnerabilities as being identified, you know, is really, really important. Yeah. It saves a lot of time on that case. Like, uh, the it, amount it, of time... It saves time, it, it de-risks, it gives confidence, you know, in, in what you've got. And, you know, that is, that's a, a key part of your security. It's Laurie again. There are countless details to think through when trying to make the right decision about the tool chains and platform, how to host a solution, which technologies to select, and how centralized or flexible you want it to be. We have written a guide regarding your approach to tool chains in your organization. True, there is not one solution that fits everyone, but our advice will help you find the right direction for your organization. You can find the link to the guide in the show notes. Now let's get back to our show. It was funny reading the, well, the latest when we are recording this has been Log4J, of course, or Log4Sale, as people have been saying. It was funny res reading the response from Log4J, where they were saying that, like, yeah, we've been get we have zero errors that we have gotten from this whole project that we have been upkeeping, but all the corporations have been putting us responsibility of keeping backwards compatibility. And now that the backwards compatibility is hitting them, they're complaining that we are in fault for doing open source. So it's kind of like keeping you safe by doing these things properly. So having the bill of materials allows you to recognize this and not blame the open source developer who is just doing it on his free time, most likely. Because that's not where the blame is. That, that, that person is most likely just developing it when he has time, but rather like knowing when to fix things. Is the thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you made a point there before that it's probably not the most beneficial thing to start from the uh, the most mature teams and uh, that makes complete sense that, that argument makes complete sense when you think of metrics and think of metrics as an average metrics and uh, you could say that there are teams that that just haven't gotten to this basic level um, let's say identification of who made the chains or commit signing or things like that and i could i could imagine that when you adopt a platform approach, it's easier to focus on those very basic things to get everybody on the 80% level. So I just wanted to bring that up in the security context that, that yes, there's a lot of stuff that you can do on an advanced course in security, but when you take the basics out of the picture, then that's very helpful. Yeah, I agree. I, and I think that it goes you know, broader than, you know, just the security side, you know, there's, there's a lot of focus these days on, you know, value streams, um, and having all teams utilizing a platform, albeit that different teams may be, you know, doing it to different levels of maturity, it gives you a common basis on, on which your sort of, uh, you know, value streams can be measured and the analytics. So you can start doing things like, you know, comparison between teams, you know, which, which teams, are proven to be more effective than others. If we make changes to, you know, maybe the way a particular team is working, how does that reflect in, you know, their performance from an, uh, you know, analytic, you know, perspective? So have, having that sort of common base 
gives you all sorts of opportunities, you know, to, to measure and uh, and Im- then improve the performance of you know teams to try and bring them all up to the you know the best in breed. The very first thing that you want is to get everybody the same authentication. Even when you have twenty different tools, uh, you have twenty different permission models that you're managing, which means that you have twenty different things that people need to remember when they are boarding in. Or if you have managed to actually do a proper IAM project, you have everything coming from one source. I have not seen that happen in any enterprise I've worked with so far, that they would have one place where you click and you get the permission where you need it. But rather you click, you get the first approval, then one guy is to you, you forgot to apply for that and that permission. And you're like, okay, yep, I applied. It goes to your manager and they need to approve once again. And it just keeps going. I've seen a lot lot of almost good ones, but like with GitLab, for example, you can, or any other like platform solution, you can show it so that you have a single sign-on once and the permission model stays the same on the whole platform that you're inside of. So you don't at least have to think about all of these things multitude of times a day. Yeah. And and the the other other area is also traceability. You know, you, you, you have sort of complete traceability from you know, initial thoughts, requirements, you know, through to your application running in production. And so, you know, if if you identify problems in production, having that, you know, clear traceability back, you know, really aids that root cause analysis, you know, in, improving times to fix, you know, more quickly. Yeah, especially when you and have I, like, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it as, as a bit of an extension to what I was saying a few minutes ago about analytics, you know, the Dora Four metrics, you know, are, are are well known within the, you know, within the industry. But for for companies to measure those themselves would be a real challenge, where mm. they've got data in different silos from different tools, yep. and they also then have to start making assumptions, you know, uh, across those different tools and the different data sets. So again, sort of you know, unifying. That data within a platform makes it much more possible to to look at that sort of aspect, and that allows you not only to you know from analytics compare internally within your your you know comparisons between your own teams, but also look to see well okay how, how are we faring compared to you know these industry metrics um, you know how how are we doing you know versus our competitors? Yeah, and it's also like the whole thing of uh, having that like continuous deployment which most companies are not at, but where everybody's trying to get to. So if you're constantly deploying and seeing what is being deployed, you get the audit work of, did everything work as expected? Because you're collecting the metrics, hopefully, to your GitLab, and you're seeing the releases, you're seeing everything there at one place, and you're seeing like, oh, we released this at that time, and that led to this performance degrade. And you don't have to build all of that yourself. It's already built into the system, if you're using the whole platform, so to say. So there is a lot of possible benefits that you can get from having everything in one place. Of course, you can build this yourself also, but then you're building it yourself. And maintaining it yourself. <laughs> I think, you know, often building, you know, building things, yeah, you can do it. It will take, yeah. a bit, you know, whatever amount of time it takes. The real cost often then comes in the maintaining it. What was it? 80% of software costs come from uh, maintenance and upkeep. That was at some point the number. Like 20% is the cost of development, 80% is the cost of upkeeping and maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. I think somebody had a wonderful expression, which was 
free as a puppy. As in, uh, if somebody offers you a puppy, yeah, the puppy is free, but it takes a toll to upkeep that puppy. And I imagine that it, it goes with, with many other technologies as well. We could not talk about GitLab without talking about working remote. And uh, we had somebody from GitLab joining about a year ago who was your head of remote. But let's talk a little bit about the benefits that companies are seeing, like GitLab as a company, but also like what's the connection between the platform approach and remoting now that we all have had to do that for a long time? Yeah, it's a great, a great area to talk about. And maybe just for, for, for listeners who aren't aware, GitLab is an all remote company. So we don't, we don't have um, an office anywhere in the world. Everybody is, is home based. Some may choose to work in co-working spaces, but, um, we do, we do not have an office. And, you know, there are, there are different ways of doing remote. And I've, I've seen both of those during the pandemic. GitLab were in a pretty fortunate place at the start of the pandemic because we're already used to working, uh, you know, working remotely. So it was, Pretty much, you know, business as usual for GitLab. Whereas I experienced others um, who were office based, who suddenly were working from home, and what their organisations tried to do was just say, okay, you're rather than working nine to five in the office, you're now working nine to five at home, and they more or less tried to keep, you know, the same processes and um, you know that they would normally use, and it just didn't work. So. I think you know one of the things that GitLab has developed over its you know over its life is a, is a very effective way of working remote in the way that you know we handle meetings, um, we we go to great lengths to avoid isolation. You know pe- people working in, in, in isolation, um, and you know some of the tooling and the ways that we work you know reflect that. And actually, using GitLab itself as a product is a big big part of that because it supports collaboration. So, you know, we've been talking today about GitLab as a, as a, as a platform for software development. You know, internally within GitLab, we, we use it for that, obviously, for the development of GitLab itself. But we always run it, also use it as a core part of running the business. And so, you know, non-technical users, our marketing folk, our sales folk and so on, we'll all be using GitLab and we'll be using capabilities to, you know, ensure that collaboration. And I've worked in you know, full-time in offices in the past. I've worked from home where companies have had an office. And that's a very, very different experience um, because in those scenarios, things still happen in the office. And when they happen in the office, they forget about the people who aren't in the office that day or that week. And I think that is a challenge for, you know, going forward, more and more companies will support remote working, but in a hybrid, many in a hybrid approach, they will, you know, expect employees to come into the office for two days a week or whatever it, it may be and i think they will need to adjust and and look at you know to make sure that it's effective you know whether somebody is in the office or whether somebody is you know is remote you, you mentioned we, we've got a head of remote which is probably not too common a, a job title but his his focus is is on that remote work and he has published a lot of information there's a lot lot of information on our website um, you know, we shared again during the pandemic, you know, how, how we do it to try and help other organizations who were forced into this way of working, you know, very quickly. Um, so, you know, if it's a topic that you're interested in, I would, I would suggest going to that. But I think the key thing I would, I would say, you know, there, there will, 
there will be a drive from individuals to be able to work from home at least some of the time now. I think, you know, the, the pandemic has changed that. But I think, you know, companies do need to think about how, how they do that, how they support those users, you know, whilst still maintaining the, the, the more typical sort of office. It's not the same as just saying, okay, you're not sitting at the desk in, in, in the office, you're sitting at home. You have to think a bit more about it. And I think there's a lot to be learned from, you know, how, how GitLab have handled that, you know, over many years. And, and for, for us, it's worked from, you know, when the company, you know, first, you know, came into being like 10 years ago, as we've grown, you know, to the size and scale we are now, um, you know, spread across, I don't know how many countries now, 65, 70 countries. But, you know, for us, you know, it works and it supports async work. It means that there's things going on 24 hours a day, it means we can hire staff anywhere on the globe. You know, for most roles, it doesn't matter that they're in a specific location. You know, that helps, you know, alleviate the problems, you know, you said, said earlier, Callie, that, you know, staff shortages and so on. We don't have to look for somebody who's based in a particular area. We, we can mm-hmm. look globally. So, and the, the flexibility, you know, that gives you as a worker, uh, you know, is, is pretty compelling. So. I would say that remote only is <laughs> transforming a corporation or a company to remote only is the same amount of work than doing an agile transformation or an organization change in general. Yeah, yeah, pro- possibly more to do it properly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've heard from a few companies that have written in their newsletter that we are now remote only company like GitLab. So did they change anything? No, 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 no. I'm like, Okay, that's not going to work. You're going to be in office in half a year. Yeah, I I think GitLab had the advantage was that you know right from the outset that yeah. that was the way the company went, and so it it evolved and it developed practices. You know, gradually over time, iterated on these practices, and so it's effective. Yeah, so I I think if you're if you are going from a you know purely office based you know organization, you do really need to think about think yeah, about it and look at it. We're going to see a new job title, which is going to be a remote consultant who's going to be like a agile coach, but he's going to be, oh, it's remote coach who's going to be coaching organizations. Yeah. They, they yeah. do, they do exist. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to see a lot more of that in future if companies keep doing it. Uh, I'm skeptical with the, like, everybody has allowed me to be remote as much as I want for the last seven years already, but. Uh, we have not been remote first, of course, because we have mm, customers yeah. that require us to be on-premise, etc. But I'm skeptical after seeing like all kinds of things of that already being problem in management and how do we do managemental things and how do we do discussions. I'm skeptical how a very big company can go fully remote, for example, in long term. Like They've done it now, but when it's possible to be in office, it's going to be very weird. Can they keep it up? Because yeah. the communication culture is so different. I wanted to have one more question on the substance based on your conversation. And then uh, I'll give Kalle the last question. Integration. You, you said before that there's a difference between best of breed and platform in the sense that in best of breed, you integrate products with one another. And in a platform model, you integrate the other products that you use besides the platform to the platform. Now, I remember a few conversations in the past where uh, our podcast guests have said that this is the era of integration innovation. 
So how, what's your take on integration? And to put it bluntly, is it open APIs or is it an integration platform? So will you take an integration platform where you take those disparate products and integrate into them into the integration platform, which then talks to whatever that tool chain as a platform is? Or is it going to be, okay, let's have open APIs everywhere and integrate everything straight into the platform product, just to make it black and white for you? Yeah, I, I think there's there's a bit of both, but predominantly the open APIs. I, I sort of li- liken it, you know, say like the the way that integrations often happened in the past would would follow the tool chain. So you'd have a tool for doing planning. It would do something, and it would hand off then to uh, you know integrate with a tool for doing the development, and into the you know another tool to do the CI, and another tool to do the you know, maybe the the security. So you, you're you're almost chaining tools together um whereas you know the the approach you know within the, the more platform orientated is each of those tools can uh, either use open apis you know get gitlab uh, you know offer to integrate into the platform or obviously we're an open source platform you know so the, you, you you can you can actually go down to that sort of level if you if you want and um you know some partners and and so on will want to do that. They will also want to build integrations, um, you know, at a deeper level than than provided. But for for the main, I would say that you know, really using our open a- APIs is the you know the, the simplest and you know most straightforward way of of integrating these third party tools. Yeah, I would say open APIs is the way to go forward, and integrations is the one that you need to support. But you shouldn't approach it from that. You should approach from API first. Yeah, and and some you know some third party products, GitLab will do the integration. You know, we we see them as as you know key. So things like you know integrating with HashiCorp Vault, for example, you know that's something that we provide because we see the benefits and you know the the use cases for you know for doing that. In, in other cases, third party vendors will do the integration. I've talked about you know security and the benefits. The workflow benefits of, of the platform. Um, that doesn't mean to say that you can't use existing security tools. So we published, in effect, an interface that would allow a third-party security vendor to produce their output in a way that would then be used by the GitLab workflow. So if if you've got your favorite security tool that you know does a great job of the you know particular type of scanning and you want to maintain it, then fine. But being able to take the output from that security tool and bring it in consistently with all of the other types of security, you know, scanning and vetting that's going on adds real value. And we've seen some, you know, key security vendors doing that. They, they've, you know, developed and provided the integration for their particular products so that they fit into the, the overall, you know, GitLab security, you know, process from a, a reporting and a vulnerability and a remediation perspective. So that brings us to the last question. And as I said, I'm going to give Kalle the honor uh, yeah. to, ha- to handle that question. Metaverse, what are your feelings? Reads in my paper. Facebook came out, now known as Meta, came out with the concept that they're going to be a Metaverse first uh, company. And I have my doubts about Facebook's Metaverse strategy, but I have feelings about few authors. And I feel GitLab is kind of in a place where they will be a metaverse competitor if they would go there. So I'm interested in hearing what Adrian's views are. You know, I, what, what what do we mean by by metaverse? I, I have sort of, I tell you, you know, there's there's really exciting aspects to it, uh, but I also see sort of 
dangers where you know virtual and reality get mixed up and you know you know pe- people get get drawn in and 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 start to sort of you know not understand what is what is virtual what is is reality um you know so from a you know almost an addiction point of view you can get sucked in um and and lose yourself in that which in you know in, in some ways is exciting and interesting but in other ways you know i think it potentially dangerous but, uh, I think the same has been said for game consoles and PCs and so on in history. So I think that's completely valid concern for all of us. Uh, yeah. Why I actually started thinking about Metaverse and GitLab, etc. was because uh, one analyst was saying that like Facebook is not, not the number one in Metaverse. Microsoft is. And that is because Teams platform is a collaboration platform between corporations and co- corporation discussion platform. So if they would incorporate just a headset to it, it would theoretically be a place where corporations could jump in and have a metaverse, theoretically. So that was where I was like, but GitLab is kind of the same thing for developers, if we look at it. So if you if you incorporate it, I, I'll take my royalties at that point. <laughs> we're we're open source, Kale. You, you, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, what, can, what I can write it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what are you doing this weekend? Yeah, yeah. quick metaverse programming, yeah. Yeah, this this has really changed my uh, point of view on metaverse. When I when I think about concept of screen time, hmm. I just observe my own boys in the living room playing games in in the virtual reality using Oculus glasses. And when they are done with the gaming sessions, they are like soaked in sweat and they are perspiring like mad. And and the question is, does that count as a screen time, or does that count as an exercise time? And therefore, if they like doing it, and if they get physical exercise, do we have to put boundaries on how much per day they can do it? Like, think about it. it it's quite a fundamental question. Do you need to put screen time on physical games or metaverse? Yeah. Uh, we get to another question, which is then again, like, uh, so I used to work in game industry, and I f- still follow it quite a lot, which is kind of like, what happens if those games are free to play, full of ads or uh, propaganda? Yeah. So then, like, you are kind of still exercising, and we are not tracking it, but at the same time, you can be brainwashed because you're in a screen. So yeah. how, do a parent, how do parents keep track on that if we go into that discussion? And, like, oh, yeah. This, this gets really, really deep. <laughs> and I think, you know, the, the, you know, the 3D and all the visualization, uh, you know, is just so mind-blowing, really, as to what, what's, you know, what's, yeah. what's possible. I, I've been around a few years, and uh, before your time in the games industry, Cali, there was, uh, on, on Unix, there was a game called Rogue, um, mm-hmm. which goes back to the early, early 80s. And it was a Dungeons & Dragons-type game where you yeah. had to wander around levels and find potions and avoid trolls and numbers. And it was totally and utterly addictive. But it was on a green screen. It was just dots and dashes and asterisks and things like that. But you could get totally addicted to it. Uh, Well, I did get totally addicted to it. But if you then sort of look at, okay, well, that was a green screen. Look at what you can do today with, with, you know, with the visualization, how much more addictive that must be. Um, Then that's sort of where some of my concerns you know, around where this could go. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you very much, Adrian and Carly, both for, for joining the DevOps Sauna podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you for listening. As usual, 
We have enclosed the links to the social media profiles of our guests to the show notes. Please take a look. You can also find links to the literature referred in the podcast on the show notes, alongside other interesting educational content. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Finally, before we sign off, I would like to invite you personally to the DevOps conference happening online on March 8th and 9th. The participation is free of charge for attendees. You can find the link to the registration page from where else than in the show notes. Now, let's give our guests an opportunity to introduce themselves. I say now, take care of yourselves and see you in the DevOps conference. Adrian Waters, and I'm a solutions architect at GitLab. I've been in the industry for many, many years, uh, you know, originally from as a developer and then going on to manage both the development and the ops side of you know, some large scale projects. And then for the last 10 years, I've really been focused on the, the, the vendor side in terms of things like version control and CI um, and uh, you know, DevOps, as it's now become known. In effect, looking back, I was practicing and promoting DevOps before it was a, a term. So it's been a natural place for me to to end up. And I've been at GitLab for just over three years and uh, working both initially with our enterprise customers and helping them. And then more recently with you know our great partners such as Efficode. I'm Kalis Jurgisso. Uh, I work as a CTO of Managed Services for Efficode. I've been here at seven and a half years now. Been around all kinds of things, seen multitude of corporations, 24-7 for seven and a half years. No operate <laughs> working on operations and big customers. I don't know. You can find me in LinkedIn if you want to know more. <laughs>